Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. We should have been preparing for the final home game of the season, which would have been against Burnley, but football suspension remains in place, so it's more lockdown talk, I'm afraid. But we do have a Canaries legend with us on the show this week. I'm your host, Dave Freezer. We're also coming to you on Future Radio 107.8 FM. We'll be discussing all the latest on Project Restart. We'll be looking back on memories of our first ever Norwich City games, and we'll be hearing all about the latest work of the Canaries Trust. Joining us is Chairman of the Canaries Trust, Robin Sainty, Lee Payne, one of our fan columnists for the EDP and Evening News, and a city legend, as I say, with 204 appearances and 38 goals between 1993 and 1999. It's Darren Eady. Right, we'll get straight into Project Restart then. And chaps, it's going to be interesting to get your thoughts on this. Um, I'm kind of at the point where it feels like it's reached... Uh, kind of a peak where I'm just getting a bit exasperated with everything and there are so many opinions viewpoints different details coming out here and there that I'm just starting to get a bit sick of it um Darren I I see you've been sort of having a few lively conversations on on social media about it and stuff I mean it's not fair to really ask anyone what do you think is going to happen at this stage because you know who knows at this point but what's your sort of take on it or where we stand at the moment well, I think there's some, there's some fundamentals that, that we all as human beings need to take into account. And, and of course, we want our football clubs to do well. We want to see football return morally. I think um, for people to, to see football again is great for mental health and you know, lifts everybody as well. But it's just some things that are just not important in times like this. And I think it's, it's almost a little bit vulgar um, to be talking about how we try and sort it out. If it can't come back as it is in terms of you know, social distancing, you, you can't social distance on a football pitch. You know, if, you, if you're talking about putting restrictions in on a football pitch, it's not going to be the same. If you're talking about having football stadiums and them, it's not going to be the same. And if you haven't got certain players on the pitch because they're they're refusing to play for for some players, and it's missing rules and regulations that are normally there on a football pitch, it shouldn't be continued. Simple as that. Well, basically, yeah, that's that. I think that's the gist that a lot of people are at at the moment, isn't it? Is that the that health has got to come before wealth is kind of the the saying that a lot of people are using at the moment. I saw Chris Gorham used it in his column. But basically, this has all come from this meeting on Friday, hasn't it, Robin? If I if I come to you next, where we were all sort of hoping for some answers, weren't we? And then. The, all that we've got from it was uh, another commitment that the the t- that the clubs want to f- conclude this season. That's that's all we got from it. I guess they they need the government for some answers, don't they? Yeah, I, I think what happened on Friday was quite interesting because it, it was pretty clear from everything that had been leaked beforehand that um, that the, the expectation was that the the meeting was decided on a specific dates. Uh, and in fact, that was still being put about after the meeting finished and before the statement came out. And then when the statement came out, it was very, very anodyne. It was very vague. Uh, and it was basically saying, yeah, as you said, we're waiting for the government and the scientists to, to say it's OK. Um, my take on it is that there's a, uh, there's a massive amount of, of avoidance of taking responsibility going on here. Um, nobody wants to be the ones to say we've made it happen because they know what the, the implications are if something goes horribly wrong by something goes horribly wrong. I mean, a, a player or someone connected with the club dies um, or becomes seriously ill. You know, I mean, what, 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 what's the insurance situation with that? What's the legal situation with that? Um, you know, everybody's dancing around it and, and we're getting more and more 
ridiculous suggestions. I mean, you know, Gordon Taylor has clearly smoked himself pretty strong, um, judging by today's interview, you know, suggesting that, that we have games of less than 45 minutes and a half. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it's getting more and more bizarre. And, and on that subject, I can actually solve the mystery because the, uh, the person who's been seen wandering around the Omrons uh, of Norwich were in the 17th century plague uh, uh, Dr. Costume is actually Tim Close checking out his new training gear. No, I mean, it's, it, it's getting more and more bizarre. It is. Now, Lee, this is just some of the stuff that we've had in the, in the last few days, which uh, sort of emphasises what I said at the top about this just being all over the place. The reports that came on the back of that meeting, we had that the bottom six were rebelling against Project Restart, that they need 14 votes but only had 13, that doctors were purposefully worrying players, that neutral venues had to be used, that relegation was off the table, then it was back on the table because the broadcaster said that it couldn't happen. That's just skimming off the top of the amount of stuff we're hearing. From, from, a, from a fan's point of view, it's, I think everybody's desperate for some answers now, aren't they? They are. And from a fan's point of view, you, 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 you're more worried about having a game to go and watch, whether that be in the stadium or on TV the, the point that everyone has to remember is that is it safe and that is the first question that they have to ask if they can't answer that with a yes it is safe then you don't come back and play yet no I don't I don't think they can I mean how can they give that guarantee of safety I just don't see how they can it's always a vaccine they're never going to give that I think football will return before that point but it will be under the proviso that there's a degree of risk to everybody that's involved in it and they will have to understand that and probably sign themselves away to that because it's not going to return otherwise until you get a vaccine because it's, it's just not possible to do that. You know, the, the whole... I, I agree with Robin. I just think there's there's a point where someone's got to take the ball by the horns here and actually make a decision on it. And for my... You know, the point I was pointing on, on social media today was about the PFA. Now, the PFA has arguably got the, the strongest hand here in a way. You know, it's the member of all the football players in the country. Now, if they decide they're not going to go back for health and safety reasons... That puts them into all these discussions straight away. The season doesn't restart. They go back and say, look, we can start next season as and when we can. That puts an end to everything. But the reason the PFA won't do that, and you know, I don't know how much too, too much people know about the PFA, is the PFA is obviously representatives of, of the football players. You know, they, they, they have to take their, their representation, make sure they're, they're represented in the correct way and do everything they want in terms of their players. Now, players right from the top of the Premier League who are on potentially £300,000 a week, maybe more, right down to, to League 2, bottom of League 2. They all pay, pay the same subscription fee every year, around about £100 per year. So why do they really want to question the, the, the messages that are going out from the PFA? They've no interest in it. They, they really don't care, you know, and, and that's in all honesty. But the difficulty is, that, so who's making decisions? The PFA should be the one standing up and saying, look, we're not going to continue with this season. Our players are human beings. We need to make sure, as I said, do you know what? I think fans will stand shoulder to shoulder with players if they come out and said that. I really do. But the problem we've got is, where is the PFA being funded by? Where's the money coming from? It comes from the Premier League. So who are they answering to at the moment? Are they answering to their members? Are they representing their members or are they representing their funders? Because to me at the moment, it seems like they're representing their funders. They should be the ones that are standing up and saying, we can call this season right now. We're not playing. Our players, we've got too many players that are concerned about health and safety not just for themselves and their families, but the wider community. I think every single fan, well, the majority of vast amount of fans will stand side by side and say, yeah, get it. And then you go for the next season. And that's the end of it. But they won't be able to do that because the funding comes from the Premier League. What happens if 
they upset the Premier League? Do they cut the funding? And then all oh, you're back to square one again. So it's just it's a, it's a real nonsense. I, you know, I hope football comes out of this and a better place that it's gone in because I believe it can. There's going to be a lot of upset. I think there's going to be a lot of financial damage to football clubs and some clubs might go out of business. But that's no different to any other business. And I've got a friend of mine who's who's in financial difficulty with his business and likely to lose it. Why should that be treated any differently to a football club? If a football club can't survive, then it starts again. And I know that sounds really harsh thing to say, but you know it has to be managed properly to come out the other side of this in a better way than we've gone in. Because football at the moment is all over the shop. It's making its own rules up. We've got Arsenal bringing players back to training because they think they can. They're saying they're doing social distancing. But again, it just sets the wrong example to everybody else who's at home isolating. We want to go out and stuff like that. But we so I just think it's messages that need to come out of this so that football can make happen. But there's going to be some collateral damage along the way. But that's inevitable with anybody in any walk of life and any business as we go through this process. Yeah, it, it, it is all over the place at the moment, sadly. I, I, I've written a column for, which is coming out in the paper state this week, where I almost feel like it's adding to the anxiety of the overall situation. Because obviously with a podcast like this, it, it, it kind of doesn't need to be said that you know, there is a far more serious health situation in the background. We are focused on, on football in this conversation. We know full well that 28,000 people have lost their lives and that is the far more serious situation. And we're looking at this from a from a football point of view. So, Lee, in terms of games behind closed doors, in terms of playing neutral venue, how would you feel about actually consuming that as someone who's just watching it on TV? I've never liked behind closed doors sport um, as a as a fan. Watching it on TV, it's just missing something. Sport isn't really anything without the fans, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm I'm a big cricket fan as well as a football fan, and there, just before world sport came to an end because of this, um, Australia and New Zealand played a couple of international matches behind closed doors, and it just felt wrong. Um, but it seemed as if that's the way we're going to have to bring sport back uh, because it's not going to be possible until there's a vaccine to have fans in the stadiums again. So I would consume it and I would enjoy it because obviously we're all missing it. But um, it's it's uh, it's not ideal. It's just how it's going to have to be. Yeah, Darren, did you ever play behind closed doors or anything close to it? Um I mean, I played in some. I've gone from playing full stadiums to then playing in a reserve match, for instance, or something yeah. like that, where you've got no one there. And it, it's very, very different. Like, like I said before, you know, there's certain elements you have to have in contact sport and, and, and elite sport like football. You have to have the players, of course. You have to have them to be able to put the games on. You have to have the fans in the stadiums. Otherwise, football isn't football. So I don't, I don't understand the closed behind closed doors thing. The only thing that seems to facilitate for me is funding for the Premier League and funding for Sky in terms of their revenues and, and for the, the you know all the sponsors that the clubs have got in terms of, I, mean, I can I can name Norwich's front shirt sponsor but I honestly couldn't tell you the other 19 front shirt sponsors in the Premier League so but that's what it's all about it seems to be led by this desire to of course people want to watch football if it was on I'd watch it but can we can we guarantee the safety of everybody at that football stadium if the answer is no then it can't go ahead but like I said before I think when it does come back if it doesn't start, if it does start before a vaccine, there's going to have to be a point where there's a de- degree of risk in it. And people take that upon themselves to go to a stadium and watch a game, knowing that they might contract it. I mean, and, and that's the end of with it. The government come out and says, look, we'll let you return. We think we can manage it because the health system can take it to the NHS, but there is a risk you might contract it and you might die. It's your choice whether you decide to go or not. I think it's going to have to come down to that in the end, perhaps. 
Yeah, it's going to be. It's going to take some very tough decisions. I mean, we heard from Daniel Farker actually yesterday, didn't we? He was on Sky Sports News, and he said um, that they want the chance to achieve their little miracle. We know that's one of his favourite phrases, uh, but not at the cost of a life. So, Robin, at this stage, uh, again, we're, we're waiting for the government to sort of lead the way. But do you think that we are almost seeing the authorities trying to exhaust all their options at this point, so that they can show? that they've tried to do everything to get football back in June, perhaps with knowing that it's more realistic that it might come back in August or September, something along those lines, maybe that there's a little bit of game playing being played here? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to remember there is a sort of contractual issue at the base of all this. Um, and obviously if, if Sky asks for its money back, it, it's going to cripple clubs. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a certain amount of, of being seen to be going through all the all the right actions and motions. Um, but you know, as Darren has said, it, it's it's just not feasible at the moment. Whilst there's whilst there's risk, you you can't do it. Um, and then of course you've got the EFL talking about finishing their season and playing over the way. Um, and, and we come back to the issue of integrity of the competition. I, mean, I, I wrote that last week. You know, um, it, it's not joined up. Everybody seems to be going off in, in different directions. Yeah. We, we're actually moving away from consensus, not moving towards consensus. And the, the thing that worries me most about all of this is that people are falling out of love with the game. You know, there, there, are, there are people who, as and when, football gets back to normal you know uh, and, and by that I mean complete normal um, there'll be people that are not coming back and, and that's that's terribly sad well, just finally on, on Project Restart then, Darren, I'll just come back to, to you and then we'll move on to some slightly happier chat. But from I, I do feel sort of sorry for the players and you've already sort of hinted at it a bit in what you said earlier in, in terms of there's a lot of pressure on them because, of course, there is the health um, considerations and then they're going to have the pressures of the financial stuff sort of put on their shoulders almost. But when you have you seen the stuff with Solomon Kalou in, in Germany? He's got himself suspended by Hertha Berlin because he did an Instagram video where he's shaking their hands because he'd passed his coronavirus test um, or, you know, it tested negative. In a dressing room and on a training pitch and things like that, this is going to be an incredibly tough adjustment for players, let alone before they even get out on the pitch. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're behind closed doors at Wembley or whatever and you score, um, at this point, have they still got to be sensible and, you know, not jump in each other's arms and celebrate? That that almost seems impossible, doesn't it? Football is an impossibility with social distancing. It's just that you just cannot do it. I mean, it's a contact sport. And, and to, to believe, anybody who believes they can go and play with masks on, stay two metres apart, it, again, it takes away the complete integrity of the game. What's the point of it? it it's not normal. It's not how it should be played. Um, you know, even to the point where, I know most goalkeepers spit on their gloves during the game for grit. They're they, they catching the football. Rolling out to players. I mean, just stuff like that. Are they not allowed to spit? I heard about that when they banned spit from the game. And players don't spit because just they want to spit because it's disgusting. It's because they're clearing the throat and, and the airways. It helps to, to help you know your lungs and stuff to, to get moving again. So you know they're all about banning. It's just it, it's not. If you can't go back to football how it is, then don't go back to football. Wait until you can return and go back properly. But I think there's always going to be a risk of this. You know, COVID nineteen is not going to go away even when the vaccine returns. That gets you know that, that's probably the only time which is going to be a long time away. Turns 
fall in, there's going to be a risk, an element of risk involved. And I think people are going to have to sign up to that or they don't. And it'll be down to the individual to make their own decisions as to whether they go or not. Let's park that there because I think, well, I hope anyway, that certainly next week or the week after we'll be able to start talking about these things with some degree of more certainty. I don't know how confident I am of that. Let's move on. And this has worked rather nicely as we've got a Canaries legend in the digital slash virtual house whatever it is <laughs> um we are going to talk about our first ever norwich city games and mine is an absolutely terrible one uh, which i will kick us off with um it was not far away from your debut actually darren it was start of 93 94 season uh august 1993 a nil nil home draw with swindon and that is what <laughs> Some re- for some reason I got the bug and from there I couldn't uh, couldn't stop. I don't think you were on the bench that day if um, transfer markets uh, got that correct. But um, are the the players on the other side for some reason I always remember that there was a goalkeeper called Fraser Digby. He was basically the only player that I remember. But John Monker, Nicky Summerby, Mickey Hazard, um, they were all playing, and Jan Olga Fjortoft came on for Swindon as well. So. That was the absolute classic which got me hooked. Um, Lee, let's come to you next. Let's keep Darren till last because we know he's got an absolute cracker. <laughs> uh, Lee, what was your first Norwich game? Uh, mine wasn't much more memorable than yours. Um, it was actually a 2-0 um, defeat to Ipswich in uh, 2003 because I was 10 years old then. And uh, yeah, it was the first time, I was, as I said, I was 10 years old. I went into the crowd, biggest crowd I've ever seen. And you could just feel that was the atmosphere more than anything. The game itself, Ipswich scored twice in the last 20 minutes and, and won the game. Um, but uh, yeah, it was more the crowd that I remember. Norwich and Ipswich finished 7th and 8th that season, by the way. <laughs> so it was, the, it was the buzz of it which, which really drew you in. I mean, I remember one of the early games celebrating a goal at Carrow Road, Lower Barkley, and I stood up on the chair, which you soon realise is a cardinal sin as a fan, don't you? And I while celebrating, fell through the back, took all the skin off my ankles, and it, while my dad was jumping around celebrating, it took him a few seconds to realise that his son was in trouble. Um, but yeah, it, it's the buzz that got you. It, it definitely is, yeah. That's what keeps you going back, and that's why you're still going there. Right. Robin, where are we going with you? Oh, ancient history, I'm afraid. It might <laughs> be the, the fifth round of the FA Cup, early 1967 against Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, I, was, I was 10 years old, um, I'd, uh, I'd sort of got the bug after Norwich won at Manchester United in the fourth round. Beat the, uh, beat the United team with all best style to John. Um, and I absolutely crazed my dad and my uncle to, to, to take me to a game. And, and uh, that was it. Tommy Bryson scored for us. Uh, we, were, we were second division. They were, they were first division. They ran out comfortable winners, but that was it then. Absolutely. It was Terrifying, I would say, as a ten-year-old, climbing up the old bank to the river in terraces, uh, trying not to get crushed when the crowd surged. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. And you got hooked so much that you you even went into sort of management and stuff as well, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A long and checkered history in the, in the game of football. <laughs> Right, here we go then. He's the, the trump card in this conversation. Mr. Edie, take it away. Um, your debut. Well, 
Well, I suppose that would be the easy one, wouldn't it, to say that? I mean, Vita Sarnam was, was my debut um, for Norwich against, uh, you know, in the European Cup and went on to have that cup run that we did. Um, but I think, you know, if, if you're going to go back to your first Norwich game, the first Norwich game I went to was actually um, a few years before that. Okay. And I was set up in the top tier of the, the river end at the time, right at the top at the back. That's where all the youth team players used to sit when they used to go to match days. And the first game I ever went to was Wimbledon at home. I don't know if you remember that, it was Wimbledon of old, when you all had a bit of a tear up in the goal mouth. Right, yeah. So that was the game when it off. And it kicked off, you know, and the was down in seven or eight, nine, ten, twenty-odd players all trying to put the boot in on the goal line. And that was the first game I ever saw a car road. And again, but you know, like any any football player or fan, it was the atmosphere that was there at the time. It's the smells, it's the sounds, um, and and I think that's the one thing. As much as you miss the football, you miss the atmosphere, you miss the smells, you miss the sounds, you miss all that stuff you get around the football ground as much as the football as well. And I think that's what people are missing as much as the football at the moment. Absolutely. And so you came on in the closing stages of the 3-0 home defeat to V-Test, didn't you, in the first round. But your, am I right in thinking your league debut, you scored at QPR, was that your league debut? Yeah, so the, the following, I think it was on the Saturday, we played QPR away um, in, the, in the Premier League, and that's my Premier League debut, and I scored. So, um, yeah, it's quite a nice start. And I think somebody told me the stat the other day, I'm still the youngest player um, to make the debut in the Premier League. So, um, mm-hmm. something I've got a hold quite close to my heart. Yes, I didn't actually know that. Somebody told me the other day. So, yeah, it's, it's quite pleasing. So, but, yeah, I mean, it's just incredible times to, to be able to make your appearance in a European you know, competition, which was, at the time, when I was a youngster, I was only eight, just turned 18. So, Mike Walker, to give that kind of confidence in me to say, go ahead, Sam, show us what you can do. I think showed a lot about him as a manager. Um, was willing to throw those youngsters in at that opportunity, but then also to stick me in straight into the Premier League game um, the following week was been better. And actually, you know, I played come on the left wing, my kind of traditional position in the European Cup, and I started as a centre forward with Chris Sutton on the Saturday against QPR. But so, you know, again, he wasn't afraid to put players in different positions, and that was yeah, I think that's what made him such a, such a good manager for me. Decent. That could have been a good little and large combination there. Well, it was. It's actually my first roomie as well. Well, that's a story for another day. He's a tramp. <laughs> All right, we'll save that one. <laughs> right, well, we're going to throw it over to you guys, the listeners, as well. We'll make that the pink composer for this week. We want to hear the, the memories of your very first Norwich game. Um, you can tweet us at Pinken. Uh, our DMs are open as well, or you can drop me an email to david.freezer at archant.co.uk. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. One year ago today, as we record, um, I was lucky enough to be at Villa Park as the uh, as Daniel Farker's team won the title. Lee, were you there that day, or how did you follow all the excitement of a year ago? Uh, sadly, I wasn't there. I was uh, I work in a supermarket, so uh, I was stuck at work. But I had my phone in my pocket and was keep checking the scores and things. And uh, because we had we we had made it a bit of a, a meal of it in the weeks leading up to promotion. <laughs> so uh, I've been doing that a lot because we'd had a lot of Sunday games, and then uh, we obviously beat Blackburn to get promoted, and then the Villa game on the uh, on the on the last day of the season. I was at everything to do with the. Um, the Monday, which was the promotion parade and the charity game afterwards, that was a tremendous day. We'll never forget that. I don't know about you, Darren, but I've actually found at the moment, this might change as we get closer to a restart, but I found watching highlights packages of old games and stuff a little bit 
uh, a little bit sad because you, you're seeing, you know, like all those celebrations of a year ago, and and then you think, well, that is football. So I, I don't know about you, but I'm finding it quite difficult to watch old highlights. Um, yeah, it has, it has been tough. But that, you watch a lot of footballs now and don't go back and watch any highlight reels or, or things that have been played in the past because it is, it is that. It's quite emotive. And I think, you know, when you miss something, the last thing you want to do is be shown it because you can't go back to it. And I think that's, uh, this is why we're in a position we're in at the moment. Everybody wants to get back to it, but we just know we can't. Right, well, just finally, Robin, I wanted to have a bit of a chat about the Canaries Trust and about the work that you guys do. Um, obviously, you have your column in, in the EDP every Saturday and, and the evening news um, where people can sort of read your thoughts. But the Trust in particular, I mean, they, you made a statement about Project Restart, so that's sort of an example of, of the Trust's work. But can you sort of sum up for people who don't know the, the kind of things the Trust get up to? Yeah, I mean, what, what we do is quite varied. I mean, obviously... Primary function is, is to um, raise money and buy shares in the club to hold interest for the fans, but also to, to work with the club on an ongoing basis. We have a uh, we have a quarterly meeting with, with Ben Council to discuss all sorts of things. Um, and really, our, our role is is to act as a, a critical friend, if that makes sense. Um, we're not going to agree with the club on, on, on everything. Um, we'll support them when we think they're right we'll, we'll say when we, th- we think they're wrong um, I was talking to Ben um, a couple of weeks ago actually he made the point that you know, that was why he felt the relationship was so strong because they knew that we wouldn't just roll over and say yeah, but, yeah that's okay um, but um, you know, what we try to, to be is fully inclusive um, we work with other, other um, supporter groups, Prague, Canaries, Courses to Canaries, Barclay End, all have seats on our board, so that they have they have uh, as much input as they want. Uh, and we're trying to do that with, with uh, as many supporter groups as possible to enable fans generally to, to get their views across to the club. Yeah, I think that's something that Norwich fans are fortunate to have that sort of body because there's a lot of clubs that don't have that kind of thing um lady do, do you feel like the club do genuinely listen to fans oh definitely more so than i think a lot of other clubs get listened to uh, listen to their supporters it's something i've always been very proud of, of being an orange fan is that the club has got a very close relationship with its fans and that is something which cannot be taken lightly particularly all the community work that's been going on at the moment, Darren, all, all this stuff with, with players calling around um, to, to maybe older fans and things like that is great to see. I mean, you're obviously involved with the club these days, aren't you? You've been uh, on match days, been doing the um, the show for... Uh, sorry, I've forgotten what it's called off the top of my head. That's the one. That's the one. Um, but that's been, that's, that's been going pretty well, it seems. Yeah, it's been, it's been really good. Um, it's a nice way for me to kind of still interact with the fans, um, get views from lots of former players and current players we've had on as well. Um, and actually it's something to give back to the fans again. And, and, and you know, I think if you can't make it to football matches, um, then it's, it's a way of being able to listen in. And, and, and you know, I think what, what we're trying to do as well, particularly from my point of view, is you know, because I used to play, a lot of those former players and current players open up just a little bit more. Um, so that I generally try to get a little bit more out sometimes and show their personalities, which I think is vital. But um, it's been great value. And again, the club have been very, very supportive about it. Um, 
kind of let us get on with what we want to do, essentially run it how we want it, which has been brilliant. Um, you know, they do like you to do that. And as Robin has said, and as Neil said, you know, when, when there is something that they engage with the fans and they, they, they like that, then, then they're up for it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they have to do a business that relies a lot on their footfall. Um, they have to. They're not like a club that's uh, outside investors. You know, they're all self-funding, so they have to make sure that the money is generated from the community. So you have to have good community projects. And I think Norwich are particularly good at it. Yeah, I think it was it the one with Jamie Kieran where he was late and your daughter sat in for him. But that that was one that stood out when you could really tell that you because you knew each other well, it was good fun. Yeah, and I've known Jamie since I was fourteen, so you know I was chatting to him on the phone. I knew he was he was delayed and getting to the car park because we all know it can be a bit of a nightmare. So um, I think in other circumstances, uh, a lot of the time, you know, you get a lot of prep and you make a lot of prep as to the questions you're going to ask. But sometimes I quite like it to be free. I remember having a conversation now. And it comes across most natural, and I think players and, and fans and everybody you generally chat to relax and open up a little bit more when you're not looking down at your papers, what you're going to ask them next. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'd hope to think that the way I do it um, makes them feel the most comfortable and gets the best out of it. While we're on it, actually, the one with Zimbo was very interesting. He was injured at the time, wasn't he? But when the I can't remember which game it was, but it was a defeat. And he seeing a player's reaction as the final whistle had gone and him trying to sort of compose himself and, and analyse his teammates immediately, I thought that was sort of enthralling watching. It was brilliant, because actually him as well, considering he was then going back into the change rooms, essentially, and see his mates the next day. He, wasn't, he didn't hold back in being critical over some of the things that happened on the football pitch. And I think people enjoy that. They want they want players to have an honest opinion. If they think one of the teammates hasn't played too well or he's disappointed what he's done there, you know, there's always a way of saying things. He's not going to hammer a player, but what he's going to say is, you know, he'll be disappointed that that turned out that way, and perhaps he could have done this differently. You know, it's the way things are said, and I think Zimbo was uh, was particularly good at that, really, really good at that, and very open actually, and about his process, about how he nearly gave football up entirely, and, and he was going down a different route, and lucky enough to pick it back at Norwich. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting insight. Just hope we can do it you know, for a bit longer, really. Get more than you have. Yeah. Well, oh, uh, we've gone off on a little bit of a tangent there, <laughs> um, Robin. But the, from the trust point of view, how impressed have you been with with the community work during during these difficult times, during lockdown? The the real efforts that they've made uh, along the lines of um, the players calling, but also the the food deliveries and the work with food bank and the Soul Church and things like that. I, I think it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, sorry, Ward. I spoke to her very um, recently and she gave me a rundown on, on what was being done and it's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, in, in fairness, a, a lot of clubs are doing great work, but the Norwich have always been very much community orientated uh, and that's coming through, I think, in, in what's happened over the last few weeks. Right, I think that'll do. Thank you very much, chaps, and thank you very much for listening. Uh, as ever, if you don't already subscribe, then please do. And if you uh, find the time to give us a rating or a review on your chosen podcast provider, then that's always very much appreciated. You can also, also hear us on Future Radio 107.8 FM. We will be back with you again very soon. Hopefully next week we'll have a, a few more uh, certain answers to discuss. But for the time being, look after yourselves, and we will catch up with you again very soon. Thank you.